traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 15, Holding Action. In 853 BC, Egypt had briefly emerged from its post-collapse isolation in order to join the anti-Assyrian coalition at the Battle of Karkar. The Egyptian pharaoh at the time was Osorkon II, from the Libyan Meshwesh tribe that dominated the 22nd ruling dynasty. After reunifying Upper and Lower Egypt, yes, again, in the early part of his reign, Osorkon spent the succeeding decades working to maintain the country's cohesion, and also undertook major building projects throughout the kingdom. Unfortunately, Egyptian unity did not outlast his passing. As I mentioned previously, one of the ways Osorkon II consolidated rule over Egypt was by installing his son, Nimlot, as high priest at Amun at Karnak, and his other son, Sheshonk, as high priest of Ptah at Memphis. Nimlot had apparently predeceased his father, and his son, Takalot, had succeeded him as high priest at Karnak in Thebes. Toward the end of Osorkon's reign, around 840 BC, Takalot declared himself Pharaoh Takalot II, and claimed dominion over all the territories of Middle and Upper Egypt. He based his new 23rd ruling dynasty at Henan Nesut, later known as Heracleopolis Magna, to the north of Thebes. Upon Asorkon II's death in 837 BC, the pharaoh Sheshonk III ascended to the throne at Tanis. Who was he? Well, he apparently wasn't the son of Asorkon high priest of Ptah Sheshonk. In fact, we don't really know who the heck he was, or what the basis of his claim to the throne was. Sheshonk III did marry Osorkon's daughter, Jesbas Peru, if that helps. But long story short, the 22nd Egyptian dynasty he now ruled only held sway over the territories of Lower Egypt. As if this split weren't enough, in the 11th year of Tekelot II's reign, he was faced with his own insurrection in Thebes, led by Pejubast, a Theban noble of Libyan ancestry. The pharaoh Tekelot dispatched his son, the crown prince Osorkon, and later pharaoh Osorkon III, to sail to Thebes and put down the rebellion. Osorkon succeeded in driving the forces of Pejubast from the city, and while he was in the neighborhood, he just went ahead and proclaimed himself the new high priest of Amun at Karnak. 
However, just four years later, in 826 BC, a second major revolt broke out, and this time Osurkan's forces were expelled from Thebes by Pejubast, who then proclaimed himself the pharaoh Pejubast I. For the next few decades, Upper Egypt was plunged into civil war, with the forces of Tekelot II and his son Osorkon pitted against those of Pejubas I and his own designated son and heir Sheshonk. Finally, in around 800 BC, the forces of Osorkon emerged triumphant from the conflict, regaining control of Thebes and all of Upper Egypt. Since his father, Tekelot II, had died in 815 BC, Osorkon proclaimed himself the pharaoh Osorkon III. He would go on to rule Upper Egypt for the next 28 mostly uneventful years. Upon his death in 772 BC, his eldest son, Tekelot, took power as the pharaoh Tekelot III and exercised control over Upper Egypt for the next several decades. In 798 BC, the pharaoh Sheshonk III of Lower Egypt died at Tanis, and was succeeded by another pharaoh of unknown origins, named Sheshonk IV. He, in turn, was succeeded, in 785 BC, by yet another mystery pharaoh named Pami. In a refreshing turn, Pami's own seven-year rule was at least followed by that of his son, Sheshonk V. Sheshonk's long 38-year reign would mark an end to both the 22nd ruling dynasty and the Libyan domination of Lower Egypt. The dynasty had held promise and even shown brief moments of greatness, but its passing in the mid-8th century BC left behind an Egypt as divided, isolated, and weak as it had ever been. Meanwhile, things fared little better in Egypt's former Canaanite possessions. In the aftermath of Adad-Nirari III's visit to the region in 796 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was ruled by King Amaziah, who succeeded his father, Jehoash, to the throne at the age of 25. According to the biblical account, 50 years earlier, during the reign of King Jehoram, Judah had lost control of its vassal state of Edom. This kingdom, on Judah's southern border, had been formed by the descendants of nomadic Shasu raiders, mentioned in Egyptian accounts from the Late Bronze Age. Over time, Edom had grown more wealthy and powerful, both through copper mining and through its role in the caravan trade between Egypt, the Levant, Mesopotamia, and southern Arabia. According to biblical tradition, the southernmost area of Edom, near the Sinai Peninsula, may have also been where the worship of the god Yahweh first originated. King Amaziah decided that the time had come for Judah to reclaim its former possession. With Judah's military diminished in the aftermath of Aramean predations, Amaziah first decided to recruit a mercenary army from the northern kingdom of Israel. But a prophet of Yahweh put the kibosh on this plan, probably raising the standard complaint about fraternizing with those idolatrous Israelites, and told King Amaziah that if he relied on Judah's forces alone, he would be victorious. Following the prophet's advice, Amaziah attacked and defeated the Edomite army, even managing to seize their capital of Selah, modern Petra in Jordan, but was never able to entirely subdue the kingdom. Sometime later, flush with this quasi-success, King Amaziah decided to challenge King Jehoash of Israel to battle. 
Preoccupied with the mutual threat of Aram Damascus, it had been decades since the two kingdoms had openly warred against one another. Fed up with Judah's holier-than-thou attitude and general outsized arrogance, King Jehoash basically sent a reply of, bring it on. He gave the knife an extra twist by claiming that Israel was fighting a holy war against Judean idolatry, as it was apparently common knowledge that King Amaziah had begun to worship several of the idols he had taken from the Edomites. Around 783 BC, the two armies met at Beth Shemesh, on the borders of Dan and Philistia, and King Jehoash utterly routed the forces of Judah. He then advanced on Jerusalem, broke down a portion of the city wall, and carried away the treasures of both the temple and the royal palace. He also took Judean hostages for good measure, to ensure the continued peaceful conduct of the southern kingdom. In defeat, King Amaziah fled to the city of Lachish, where he was eventually murdered. The throne of Judah was inherited by his young son, Uzziah, who ruled for the next several decades. Portrayed in the Bible as a vigorous and able king, Uzziah was both a pious follower of Yahweh and an innovator in the art of warcraft, patronizing engineers in their development of weapons for the defense of cities. Later in his reign, he was apparently struck with leprosy, and effective control of Judah passed to his son, Jotham, in 751 BC. Soon after his victory at Beth Shemesh, King Jehoash of Israel also died. His relationship with Yahweh had always been complicated. He'd fought Judah in the name of religious orthodoxy, and was at the bedside of the prophet Elisha as he lay dying. But he also made sacrifices to the golden calf as part of a public ceremony in Bethel, and as a topper, had even begun worshipping the Edomite idols he had taken as booty from Jerusalem. Man, those must have been some pretty impressive idols. Anyway, after a period of co-regency, his son and successor, King Jeroboam II, became sole ruler of Israel in 782 BC. The biblical account, corroborated by archaeological evidence, characterizes Jeroboam's 30-year reign as among the most prosperous that Israel had ever known. This prosperity was mainly built on trade, in commodities such as olive oil and wine, with both Egypt and, to an even greater degree, Assyria. Jeroboam was also blessed with a surplus of buzzkill prophets, among them Hosea, Joel, Jonah, and Amos, all of whom spent their time railing against the increased materialism that grew hand-in-hand -hand with Israelite prosperity. In addition to wealth, Israel also grew in both population and military strength under Jeroboam II's rule. In a nice piece of payback, Israelite forces attacked the weakened kingdom of Aram Damascus, formerly the terror of the region, and managed to successfully sack the capital, as well as extend Israelite control over the Aramean city-state of Hamath, modern Hama. In 752 BC, Jeroboam II was succeeded by his son Zechariah, who ruled for only six months before being murdered and having his throne usurped by Shalom. Shalom, in turn, only ruled for a month before being besieged in the capital of Samaria and then executed by an Israelite general named Menachem. 
King Menahem would go on to restore stability to the kingdom, forming a new Israelite ruling dynasty under the house of Gadi. Meanwhile, to the east, in Babylonia, stability was nothing more than a distant memory. Their last truly great king, Nebuchadnezzar I, lay three centuries in the past, and it had been a century since Nabushuma-Ukin had succeeded in checking Neo-Assyrian advances into Babylonia through force of arms. Now, the land of the world's first great civilization lay humbled, diminished, fragmented, and at the mercy of Neo-Assyrian whims. Luckily, the Neo-Assyrians frequently had other fish to fry, so Babylonia played it quiet, kept their eyes downcast, and tried not to attract attention. Meanwhile, doing what they could, quietly, to preserve at least some sense of what they'd been. While new records from this period are scarce, and really, can you blame them for not bothering to take the time to record the events of this era in clay tablets for posterity? Babylonian scribes did continue to copy the earlier literary and scholarly texts from the more notable periods of their long and storied history. As always, the cities of Babylonia took on the heaviest burden of cultural continuity. Even reduced in size and economically weak, cities still served as political bases for the rules of kings and royal governors. Nowadays, the consent for such rule was often only granted in exchange for special privileges for the local citizens, namely freedom from taxation, forced labor, or conscription into the army, as well as protections against land seizure. Such mutual agreements were renewed upon the ascension of each new king, and were considered bound by the will of the gods. As mentioned previously, Babylonia went without a king, or at least without any king worth mentioning, for the first decade of the 8th century BC. The next king to pop up in the records was Ninurta Apla X, where the X stands for I really, really cannot make out that last character. What did he do? What was he like? Did he have any hobbies? Sadly, the historical record is silent on all these fronts as it is for the next king, Marduk-Belzeri. It isn't until the following king, Marduk-Apla-Usur, who took power around 780 BC, that we start getting some historical traction again. Marduk-Apla-Usur was notable for being the first Babylonian king of the Chaldean tribe. His initial power base was in the south, the former territories of ancient Sumeria, now referred to as Sealand, which, I don't know, sounds like some kind of ancient amusement park. Anyway, around a decade into his rule, Marduk Apla-Usur was able to extend his rule farther north, into core Babylonian territories, in the aftermath of a series of devastating campaigns waged in the region by Neo-Assyria. Adad-Nirari III had spent the decades since his conquest of Damascus waging almost constant warfare across Assyria's borders, fighting the Persians and Medes in the east, and leading Assyria's armies southward against Babylonia and into the Arabian Peninsula. His long and vigorous 28-year reign, which had done much to forestall further Neo-Assyrian decline, finally ended in 783 BC, when he was succeeded by his son and heir, Shalmaneser IV. Under Shalmaneser's ten-year reign, the Assyrian Turtanu, Shamshi-Ilu, returned to the forefront as military leader of the empire, 
waging wars against the Arameans, the Neo-Hittites, and the powerful northern kingdom of Urartu. In 785 BC, the Urartian king, Menua, had been succeeded by his son and heir, Argishti I, under whose rule the kingdom reached both its greatest territorial extent and the pinnacle of its military might. Under Argishti's leadership, Urartian forces conquered new territories along both the Araxes River and Lake Savan in the north. King Argishti also used thousands of slaves captured in his campaigns to build several new Urartian cities, most notably Arabuni to the north of Mount Ararat, which he founded in 782 BC, and which still exists today as the Armenian capital of Yerevan. In a nice throwback to the Late Bronze Age, he also founded the city of Argishti Kanili, yes, named after himself which still exists as the Armenian city of Armavir. In the south, however, the kingdom of Urartu was repeatedly challenged by Neo-Assyrian forces under Shamshi-Ilu. The Turtanu's victory over King Argishti in at least one northern campaign was recorded on several public monuments, including a colossal stone lion commissioned in honor of the occasion. But for the most part, Urartu came out ahead in these conflicts, and even managed to seize control of the territories around Lake Urmia, east of Lake Van, from Neo-Assyrian forces. Despite being one of the most important kingdoms of the early 8th century BC, our knowledge of the Urartian state is limited, and derives mainly from Assyrian military accounts. The most impressive archaeological finds are its bronze metalwork, cast in a wide variety of forms. This was largely a product of Urartu's access to numerous mines and its control of important metal trading routes between central Anatolia and Iran. Urartian culture had both linguistic and religious ties to the Hurrians. Many gods are named in Urartian royal inscriptions, but only two are familiar. Teshaba, who is the Hurrian storm god Teshub, and Shawini, the Hurrian sun god Shamiki. The most important god in battle accounts was Haldi, probably a war god, but unknown elsewhere in the Near East. Haldi's main cult center was at Musasir, the neighboring city-state that the Urartians had annexed under King Ishpuini in the late 9th century BC. Temples dedicated to Haldi were adorned with weapons, with swords, spears, bow and arrows, and shields slung from the walls, and were sometimes known as the House of Weapons. Typical iconography depicts the god as a beardless man standing atop a lion. The Arartian king was considered the chief priest or envoy of Haldi, and some temples were part of the royal palace complex, while others were independent structures. With the expansion of Urartian territory, many of the gods worshipped by conquered peoples were incorporated into the Urartian pantheon as a means to confirm the annexation and promote political unity. However, the Urartians were selective in their choices. For example, while several Urartian kings made conquests in the north, many of those people's gods remained excluded. This was most likely because the Urartians considered northerners to be barbarians and disdained their gods as much as they did the people themselves. 
764 BC, King Argishti I's successor, Sarduri II, inherited an Urartian kingdom that was quite possibly the most powerful state in the Near East at the time, and he knew it. One of his first actions was to erect a massive wall at the capital of Tushpa with the inscription, The Magnificent King, The Mighty King, King of the Universe, King of the Land of Nairi, a king having none equal to him, a shepherd to be wondered at, fearing no battle, a king who humbled those who would not submit to his authority. Very look upon my works ye mighty in despair, in the typical Mesopotamian vein, but a little more poignant considering how quickly the clock is ticking on this particular state of affairs. With all the connections in language and gods, is anybody else having flashbacks to the once-powerful kingdom of Mitanni? Yeah, that's going to prove to be a fairly apt comparison. Meanwhile, while he was off leading Assyria's armies into battle, the Turtanu, Shamshi-Ilu, compelled King Shalmaneser IV to remain in his palace at Nimrud, where he was surrounded and dominated by a clique of powerful Assyrian nobles. It could not have been a happy existence for the nominal master of the world. In 772 BC, Shalmaneser IV died, and the throne passed to his brother, Ashurdan III. Too weak to challenge either Shamshi-Ilu or the other powerful nobles, who now effectively ran the Assyrian state, Ashurdan III instead presided over a veritable laundry list of disasters and ill omens. Things started out promisingly enough. He even managed to lead a series of three campaigns between 771 BC and 767 BC against the northern Babylonian cities of Gananadi and Marad. It was these assaults that had weakened Babylonian power enough for the southern Chaldeans, in the form of Marduk Apla Usur, to expand their influence northward. But these victories would also turn out to be the high point of Ashurdan's reign. Two years later, Assyria was hit by a major plague that devastated the population. Two years after that, major rebellions broke out in the cities of Ashur, Arapka, and Guzana, which were only quelled by the effects of a second major plague that swept the land four years later. To cap it off, the rebellions in 763 BC had coincided with a super-ominous near-total solar eclipse, recorded by the Assyrians as Shamash Akalu, or Broken Sun. I'm guessing it was fairly hard for Ashurdan III not to take all of this a bit personally. Meanwhile, in Babylonia, Chaldean power became further entrenched under the rule of Ariba Marduk, who succeeded Marduk Apla Usur to the throne in 769 BC. A member of the Bit Yakin tribe, one of three leading Chaldean tribes along with the Bit Dakuri and Bit Amukani, Ariba Marduk would later be given the title Reestablisher of the Foundations of the Land, and was credited with restoring at least some stability to the kingdom after decades of turmoil. He would also be looked back on as something of a father figure by later Chaldean kings. Ariba Marduk's origins and the nature of his claim to the Babylonian throne are unknown, but it's been speculated that he may have been the son of one of five unnamed kings who held power briefly at the dawn of the 8th century BC. 
Ariba Marduk continued Marduk Apla'user's efforts to consolidate southern rule over northern Babylonia, defending the cities of Babylon and Borsippa against nomadic incursions and restoring fields and orchards to their rightful owners. On the religious front, Ariba Marduk returned the throne of the god Marduk to his temple, called the Esagila, in his patron city of Babylon, and also restored a portion of the temple of Ishtar in the ancient city of Uruk. In 761 BC, he was succeeded to the throne by Nabushuma-Ishkun, a Chaldean king of the Bitdakuri tribe. A contemporary account, written by Nabushuma-Imbi, the governor of the important city of Borsippa, records Nabushuma-Ishkun's reign as a time of weakness and regional autonomy, punctuated by frequent struggles over agricultural land. In the governor's own words, Disorders, disturbances, revolt, and turmoil occurred in Borsippa, the city of truth and justice. During the reign of King Nabushuma Ishkun, the Dekurian, the Babylonians, the Borsippians, the people of the town of Duteti, which is on the banks of the Euphrates, all the Chaldeans, Aramaeans, and the people of Dilbat sharpened their weapons for many days to fight with one another, and slew one another. Moreover, they fought with the Borsippians over their fields." The streets of Borsippa and its temple area became a nightly battleground between rival factions. The strife apparently reached its pinnacle in the fifth year of the king's reign, when the cult idol of the city god Nabu was prevented from making its customary New Year's pilgrimage to Babylon. It took several more years for the king and local officials to restore order, after which the governor was able to effect repairs on the temple of Nabu and its damaged storehouses. Back in Assyria, in the wake of all the plagues, revolts, and, well, solar eclipses, Ashurdan III probably would have been surprised to learn that, a few years after his death, his reign might have been looked back upon wistfully as the good old days. Adad-Nirari's third son, and Ashurdan's brother, Ashur-Nirari V, took power, well, took up residence in the throne room, in 754 BC. And there he would remain while the Turtanu, Shamshi-Ilu, four kings in and still going strong, continued to lead Assyria's armies on whatever foreign campaigns he believed to be in either the kingdom's or his own best interests. Ashur-Nirari V, meanwhile, was left to contend with an empire in a near-perpetual state of revolution, and simultaneously forced to bribe local dignitaries with large gifts and land grants in order to shore up his increasingly tenuous rule. As central leadership devolved, sculpted stone monuments, once a veritable symbol of Assyrian kingship, gave way to statues and stelae commissioned by senior officials, typically eunuchs, which were erected in the plazas of provincial centers. Local governors devoted their energies to ensuring the prosperity of the regions under their own control, and provincial resources stopped flowing into the royal court at Nimrud. Things were falling apart, the center was not holding, and the most powerful empire the world had yet known was teetering on the edge of the abyss. Next time, Assyria's downward slide will finally be halted, and reversed to an almost unimaginable degree, by a ruler who would grow to become so powerful and feared by all the lands and peoples of the Near East that he would later be referred to simply as the Assyrian. 
And if you've followed the history of Assyria over the course of this podcast series, you probably have at least some idea of how terrifying that nickname can be. Under his 18-year rule, this former general will hone the Assyrian army and civil administration into a highly efficient engine of conquest, growth, and assimilation, outmatching even the grandest dreams of Ashurnasirpal II and Shalmaneser III. In the process, he will also abolish the last traces of independence from Assyrian vassal states and deport hundreds of thousands of conquered peoples from their homelands to the farthest flung corners of the empire. Meet Tiglath-Pileser III next time on The Ancient World.